So Jane and Peter, what, what for each of you would be a key takeaway that you'd like our listeners to understand so that they could perhaps bring some of your thinking into their workplace? What I'd like people to take away is we have a problem with our thinking. We feel quite separate. Actually, we're quite connected, quite interdependent. Acting as if we're not is causing us real trouble. In a dialogue, we're trying to build a common picture about something that about a decision to be made in an organisation. There's a content about which we have different perspectives and we're trying to build a common picture about that. Hello. Our guests today are Jane Ball and Peter Garrett, founders of Dialogue Associates, a consulting firm that specialises in collaborative thinking and organisational learning. Peter and Jane consult and coach all manner of teams and organisations around the world, from UN institutions to oil and gas companies and prison communities, inspiring them to create more effective and collaborative teams, largely through what they call professional dialogue. I'm Robert Diggings, and this is Highly Relational, the podcast about creating, leading and developing great teams at work, along with all of the opportunities and challenges of getting people to work together. If you're a leader, a manager, an HR professional, a coach, consultant or trainer, we're here for you. And our aim is simple, to help you create world-class teams where you work. In our conversation today, Jane and Peter explain why the modern world is challenging our way of communicating deeply, why decisions can't be made about people without including them, and why all meetings should start with inquiry, not advocacy. So dialogue. It sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Human beings having a chat, something most of us are doing all the time, some might say too much of the time. But Jane and Peter believe dialogue lies at the core of healthy teams and organisations, and perhaps even society as a whole. So what exactly do they mean by dialogue? If you take the word dialogue as two parts, dire is through, logos is meaning or the word, Dialogue is finding a common meaning amongst a group of people, team, an organisation, a community, whatever. If you don't have a common meaning, you have a number of different stories about what's happening. Those different stories, unless they're compatible, confuse the situation. So simple way of talking about dialogue is a group of people come with different ideas and perspectives, talk together, listen to each other in a way that they start to find a common understand your common story of the situation. One of the things that people, when they get into the room together, have to be willing to be honest and open about what they're thinking and also share some of the background to that. So one thing is I can just tell you my view, which may come out quite strongly and belligerently, who knows. But can I actually explain to you why I think the way that I do so that you understand that? And then for others, as I'm speaking, are they listening? Can they listen to what I'm saying? Can they really understand what I'm saying and what I mean? and actually include that in themselves. There's a tendency of people are saying things you don't agree with, that you kind of reject it, and that stops you from listening. So what we would talk of as respect is the ability to really include those ideas in yourself as they're speaking. doesn't mean you have to agree, but you can get it into you. So are you teaching people how to converse? 
in a way that they because most most yeah. of us are, are, I think we're dialoguing anyway, and a lot of people listening to this will will say, well, this is what this is what I'm a leader. I'm talking to my direct reports. I'm uh, maybe talking to the whole business. I'm in meetings all of the time, and I'm dialoguing. But you you must be talking about something slightly more specific. I mean, we actually talk about seven different modes of people talking and thinking together. Talking with your people in the way you describe that a leader might do is often actually what we'd call monologue. So actually I'm telling. I'm, here's a long explanation of me and my, you know, from me, of my view and what it, I'm thinking. Then other ways in which people talk, converse, you talk about conversing. We would think of conversation as a much more interpersonal exchange where we get to find out what we have in common and we build rapport, which is a great thing to do. Quite difficult to do that if you have lots of people. Quite easy with two or three of you together. We can talk about our kids or our work or our journey to work or what we're working on at the moment and why we enjoy it or why we don't. But actually, if we've got a larger group, maybe a team, depending on how big your team is, but usually a team of people or a group of people working together, you've got many different views to include. You know, there are many modes, but another one, of course, is debate. And that's the one that happens if you get people who've got different views than you in the room. You're trying to include them, but actually you don't like what they're saying. You start to reject it. And, and so you go on, become an argument, basically. And so you have techniques or an approach to enable disagreement or conflict to happen conversationally that is encouraged and is productive and useful. Well, if, if you want to understand other people, what they think and feel and why they do what they do, you, you do have to take into account disagreement. I don't have to agree with you as much as understand why you're doing what you're doing, how you're doing it. You have good reason for the way you do things. I have as well. If we don't understand each other, that's where we have a problem. So on your earlier question, we're not just talking, helping people learn how to talk together. It's not just interpersonal. How does a whole group have a common understanding of what they're trying to do? So in a team, for example, that may be interpersonal, People can't talk together very well. Quite a bit of it is beyond the team. This may be a terrific team that may be causing a lot of trouble with the stories it has about other teams. <laughs> so it goes beyond interpersonal, beyond the team, to how the groupings affect each other in the organisation because each of them are making decisions that affect each other. And in that, we have the challenge. I don't know if this is a bit controversial, but I think one of the challenges with the interpersonal route is that we develop that relationship and then because I like you and you like me, we make some decisions together out of that, about, out of that liking each other. Whereas in fact, if you, that may not always be the best thing for the bigger context, you know, for the whole team, for the whole organisation, for the um, communities or the clients or the customers that we're serving. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't be against having good interpersonal relationships. We like not only our colleagues but our clients and others we form good friendships but the question is are we doing the right thing here so i wouldn't be so worried about whether you're happy as much as whether deeper down you're satisfied with what you're doing and your contribution to what's happening so the first dialogue work i did you know 25 years ago was in a prison i met peter who was running a charity called prison dialogue and those dialogues were between staff and prisoners within actually a maximum security prison. Now, if you said to those staff and prisoners about having good interpersonal relationships, 
and that that would be the foundation <laughs> for having a safe and healthy environment within that prison. Say, absolutely no way. What do you think? I'm a grass or, you know, that's, you know, that's bad for security. So you cannot have that. But with the dialogue, they establish a good quality of relationship that means inmates can live in that prison safely, staff can work in that prison safely, and they can rub alongside each other in a humane, respectful, positive way. Is this something that has to have, is very boundaried? Do we go, we're now starting a professional dialogue and we're going to do it for an hour or for three hours and then it comes to an end? Or is it something that in the end becomes the way of how the organisation or the team functions? I think both. So I think it becomes part of the way that you think and therefore it's part of the way that you always behave and always engage with people. But then there will be times, just like you have a meeting, you know, having a business meeting to talk about this thing, we would have a business meeting where we make sure that we have all of them in the room, all the different perspectives included, and we have that meeting with a dialogic mode, a dialogic way of talking together, not a debate, not monologues, not conversation, but actually have a dialogue. Add to that, I don't know if you're familiar with Greek words for time, Kairos and Kronos. You familiar with them? Yes. So organizations, and most of our dialogue work is within organizations, are run on Kronos. Kronos, set time like a chronometer, coordinates all the activity. That's why organizations are so capable of doing stuff. Dialogue requires what we call Kairos. That's timing rather than time. When's the right time to raise this question with you? Mm -hmm. When's the right time for the organisation to embark on that? And the sense of timing is much more seasonal. It's much more like when do we harvest, when the crop's ready, it's not ready, we've got the labour. A number of things all come together that enable us to move forward rather than our plan is by the 3rd of April we'll do it. So our challenge with dialogue is the organisation is chronological and will allow an hour and a half or today, 40 minutes, or whatever it is. And the activity is a more timing matter. So what can we do in that time? So we would draw a circle around and say, okay, well, let's let's aim to have a dialogue in this next hour and a half. Let's set back a little bit from our fixed positions. Let's try and think together what will be most helpful here, and let's learn a bit together. Nice. So let's, let's talk a bit about the practice then and how you would go about taking your work and methodology into an organisation, what might that process look like in how it would actually unfold in the way that people could see and watch happening? (laughs) You'd always start with what they're trying to do. That's the the basic thing. You'd usually have somebody in a leadership position who either has an issue a crisis, a, a thing, a problem, or they have an opportunity or a vision, something that they're crying, trying to create. That's where you begin. And then with them, you start to think about who they need to start to include in that. Usually then you start to include a smaller group of people around them, their direct reports in that thinking. And then you start to design a, a sequence of dialogic interventions to start to either address the challenge or kind of build the opportunity. With that, um, and of course it depends on what your, where your client can go, what their budget is, whatever, um, with that you would also want to put in some skill building so that what you introduce can be sustained. So one group I worked with, 
began with the leadership team, the executive group, sat down, we're going to bring some dialogue into this mm-hmm. organization. Don't worry too much about what that is. Let's start. I just want to hear from everybody. I know you're the executive team. Do you think you are a team or not? What makes you say you are or aren't a team? We hear from them all. I'm thinking, this is not a team. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But the point is, so are they. So we're all together thinking this is not a team. So why don't we introduce some skills about how you could talk about what you're doing, explain it in a way that others could understand it, and how could you sustain your attention actually listen and find out in an open way, receive it and get together on it. Then we start to get a bit more of a team going. They're bringing in planning. They're fast-growing, highly profitable, lots of models floating around. They need a clear plan. So we create a plan for each of the executive leaders, eight years out, two years out, and now. And what do they find? All their separate plans, when they talk about them together, don't hold together. The organization isn't going to work in the future. Now, they didn't know that because they were all doing it privately. So in the dialogue, you've got an open, common understanding. We do it, each presents their plan, we have a look at it and so on. From there, we start to say, okay, well, what do we need? You start to get a generative thinking together about what could happen. People adapt them. And then what? They start to show it to everybody else in the organization. So they're about 1,000 people. Everybody can see every plan in the organization. That's an open, common understanding dialogue, common meaning through the group. They have town halls, you walk around, and that's what you're doing in the, in the operations part. That's what you're doing in the this exploration part. That's what you're doing with your IT, your HR. Well, why don't I go over there? We could do that. Oh, we get a whole new system now. So the organization itself is open and thinking about how it's doing things rather than trying to network and form new relationships or whatever. They do that as well, and they move around, but the whole thing is transparent. So that, that's a real story over a period of maybe three years, of which I document a lot of skill building and purposeful meetings with teams, and then with the organization as a whole. Really, really helpful, mm. because mm. now we've got that that story, if we could use Context that as, a, as a, a piece of process that happened over... 36 months or whatever, you talked about a sequence of interventions. And yeah. so it's like, well, what, what, I'd love to know what a sequence mm. of interventions mm. might, mm. I know, I know mm. it will, uh, or I assume it could well be very different for yeah. each different client and each different situation. But could we yeah. have an, could you explain what that might look like? And then you also talked about some education and I'd yeah. be really, <laughs> uh, really interested to know what that might look like. But let's start with the sequence of intervent. What do you mean yeah. by a sequence of interventions? First sequence might be with that leader. What is the state of your team? You went straight in and met the whole team, worked with other leaders where the first thing is, you haven't really got the right people. <laughs> so, you know, so that's the one-to-one coaching, but thinking about the team and the organisation, because you're not just thinking about the team because of the relationship, it's what's the team trying to achieve. So you're thinking with the leader about their team in the context of how their organisation is succeeding and failing. So that's the first intervention, how to help them think about themselves and how they work with the team, get the right team in place. So that might be your first intervention. Um, a subsequent one then might be, okay, so we're, we've got problems in this area. So who are all the different people who are involved in that problem area? 
Who are all the different, you know, is it finance, HR? Is it, you know, operational people? Is it the union involved? Like, where is it? And then you start, you gather them into a dialogue. That takes some time. You have to identify all the different stakeholders, we call them that, internal stakeholders. You talk with them independently to start to hear their story. We talked before about how a dialogue integrates the story. When you say you talk to, do you mean you, you. as the you as the facilitators yeah. of this process would yes. talk to them indiv- in, in, independently? Yes. In groupings, aiming that everybody has what's discovered, not the consultant. Yeah. Jane or I or both of us would know, but everybody knows. Yes. <laughs> so we're not trying to give expert guidance, we're trying to make it all available. Absolutely. And in, and the whole point of talking to them separately is to be able to bring them together so that then they can talk to say it to each other. I don't need to know. So the point of that preparation is partly building rapport so that when we get into the room, they're kind of looking at me and thinking, oh, well, I said it to Jane so I can say it here. So it's a little bit of that. And also you, I, as the interventionist, can start to see how the whole thing fits together. So I have in my own mind, I know how this can work out for everybody's benefit. don't know exactly, but I know it can. So those preparatory conversations mean that when we get everybody together to the dialogue, it helps to oil the wheels. It'd be very different if you just you mapped it on a piece of paper, got them all in the room and tried to build that container for the group immediately. So then in, in the room, when everyone's there, they're telling their different stories. There are a number of different things we can do there, depending if this is a historical thing that's been around for a while. We use spatialization, all sorts of things in the moment. But the aim is that they end up with common understanding and a common story. Then when they leave, they act in a very different way. So I, lo- I so love that's that. a couple of... Yeah, that's super helpful. And, and I'm making connections to a couple of conversations in this series with... Um, with Stuart Maester, who talked about the importance of, of, of story yeah. and narrative, and and also Neil Malarkey um, in his book, there's a whole uh, chapter about story and the importance of that. So, is what you're effectively doing enabling story to be retold and heard, and then through that refined? I'm kind of asking you whether this is a, a, essentially an intervention into an organisational or a team's story. Is that? How you see it or not? One level of it is that how we make sense of things, get a bit of information here, hear that from there, read this, is we we make a form a story of it. That story works if all the bits of information I have make sense in that story. The story may be held by me personally. Mm -hmm. It's more often held by me and a group of people who think like me. So we get what I would call a subcultural group. Mm a particular kind of grouping at a certain hierarchical level or background or function or whatever. And that the stories you find in the organisation, there are a number of them that are held differently by different subcultural groupings. So if I give a, like an industrial plant, the union or two unions might have a different story. Management has a different story. Middle management has a story. In broad terms, those stories don't hold together and you see it in the newspaper, you see it in the complaints, you see it all the time. Now, by holding stories that way, they're creating the problems they have to solve all the time. (laughs) So the story must not generate problems, the story must generate a common future that works. So, But you can't design that, get the script and sell it to people, you know, roll it out so that everybody gets the story. 
actually have to generate it together, you can only do that, in our view, through dialogue. By talking and thinking together, you don't want to exclude bad parts of the story, you want to incorporate them. <laughs> and you can't incorporate unless you understand why are you so hurt? Why was that so significant? Now I get what your part is and what you're trying to do. By incorporating it, we end up with a rich story. It's not only commonly held, but it's developmental. It poses a future, which is a kind of thing we want to be doing together, rather than well, this, it always happens that way in this organisation, whatever. So, and so I, really it is story. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I think that the subcultural groups are really important. So it's not just about my Jane, my story, but I'm telling the story that everybody within the union is telling or all the women in the organisation are telling. And every time I'm with, I maybe sit down with my leadership team and, and I'm thinking more like a member of the leadership team where we all think, well, we have our policies on these things, of course, and it's all going fine. I get back with the women with whom I work or with my other union members, and then I'm back in that story and back in that narrative. And it reinforces itself in that subgroup. So it takes real work. Not only this is why it has to be sustained, because otherwise I can come into the group where they're representatives from other subcultures. We get it together. Now, what's going to stop me then going back to my union and saying, oh, yeah, we had this quite good meeting. They called it a dialogue. So that requires sustained dialogue and sustained way in which I take that story of what's happened with the mixed group back to my union. Um, this is super helpful. Yeah. Uh, what I now would uh, like to understand <laughs> is, is whether or not the goal as you see it, is to have a single story. Is that the, the ultimate goal, is that there is a single story that all of the different parties tell, or is it more that each group understands the other's story? Well, the, the typical imposed story is that we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. And if I'm not sure, give me the PowerPoint slides that I know, because mm. I want to support the story. I'm loyal, I want it to work, mm. I'm good. That is not a commonly held story. That's an imposed story. So, Well, it can be a story on top of the real, the real it, story. It's, it's like... a story that we publish and tell. Yes. This is why we're so good in our business, because we do this. The actual story is a, a more, it's a deeper quality than that. Mm. It's how I feel about the colleagues I have and about the work we do and what we're trying to do. And depending on the field and so on that you're working in, it's a story that makes a contribution of a particular kind that I'm proud to make. <laughs> so it's not, I would be doing it even if the organisation weren't because I believe in this. So people don't come to work just to get paid. They know if they don't come, they affect their colleagues. <laughs> They're actually part of a process of growing and developing something. So if you have a living story, everybody tells it differently. <laughs> not only do they tell it differently, but you hear the same story. So the underlying storyline is a common generative storyline that works, but the storyline is played out uniquely by each person. So it's a joy to hear how it's told differently in different parts of the organisation. Then you know you've got a, a good storyline to what you're doing. You know? yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm getting an insight now into the depth of the, of the work and where you are both coming from. Mm. In, because to do what you've just described is deep personal and collective work. Yeah, it, it's good professional work as well. It, it really is. We've done it in a lot of different yeah. contexts, really. We live in an age 
where everything is done through organizations. My grandfather had a farm that was hardly an organization. The foreman lived on the, in a house on the farm and so on. It wasn't really. Now, everything is run by organizations. It's so prolific, pervasive, that we don't notice. You're born in a hospital. You go back in a car that's been made by a company. The roads are developed. You live in a house. Your fuel, your food, your water, your electricity, your entertainment. Think how many organisations are involved in us being here today making this podcast. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 <laughs> yeah, I it's so much there we don't notice the fact that mm. organisations are everywhere. What do they organise? Work, money, whatever. I believe the key thing is they organise decision-making. So decision-making is delegated through organisations, from the owners or shareholders or whatever, through executive groupings. Each person is given a certain amount of a decision-making authority. Those decisions made in those organisations, you and I have to live with. As individuals, we can't make decisions about our roads, our water supply, our products or whatever. We have to live with the decisions made by organisations. Now, when you look more closely at organisations, they are fundamentally fragmented. They're fragmented after a certain size. If you're small, you can all get round a table and have a dialogue. Why are you doing this, Robert? Why are you doing that, Jane? And we can work it out. When you get bigger, you can't do that. And we know more and more about our department, or division, we call it. Mm. It becomes fragmented. And the experience we have is that most organisations we meet are fragmented. Try and get new Wi-Fi system. You talk with different fragmented parts of the same <laughs> organisation about paying for it, about getting delivered, getting on time and so on. That you, it's blatant how fragmented they are. And that's causing us a load of trouble because every organisation is creating more problems, themselves and each other. So we have a, a pervasive problem produced by organisations of fragmentation that we're not addressing at the moment. We're trying to solve all our problems. <laughs> so that's what we're proposing is dialogue and the skills of dialogue can start to address just that. Is there not, though, a view that you, one could argue that, that that's just um, an unfortunate and perhaps necessary consequence of the size of organisations, governments, uh, all sorts of organisations, that they're still delivering the roads and the cars and the, and the Wi-Fi and the podcast studios? Mm -hmm. uh, and so is there a, a, a utopia or an, do you believe there is a way for us to organise ourselves and deliver the complexity of our society and, and, and all of the incredible things that are created by organisations without the unfortunate consequences, uh, one of which you've just highlighted to do with fragmentation? It, I think it's, we're way down the road, aren't we? That's, that's one of the problems with the size of, of organisations and some of the decisions that those organisations yes. have, have, have <laughs> taken. But there is something you can do, and I think um, a dialogic approach is part of that. Because what a dialogic approach can do is it starts to increase awareness. So we're saying one of the problems with this fragmentation is that your, you know, part of your organisation only knows about what's going on in that part. And it doesn't have a bigger view of what's happening in the organisation and beyond the organisation in society. And it just keeps doing its thing and tries to get bigger and better and more successful without any awareness of how it's affecting other parts of the organisation. So the awareness okay. is one thing. Dialogue then can give you the awareness of the 
bigger system. There's something for me about scale I, and, and whether or not, are you arguing that we need to, that organisations need to be smaller so that they can be more aware or, are, or or do you believe that if they function differently, they could be as big as they are and, and not have the... It's kind, it's kind of fractal-like and it's yeah. the same anyway. So if, for example, you take one team in an organisation, like I think of one specific example, they were procurement and they got awards internationally for their abilities in procurement. Oil and gas, executive goes out onto a platform and there's a ladder tied together with wire and nails, <laughs> health and safety risk. Why have we got that risk? This is totally unacceptable. Procurement. What do you mean procurement? You know how long it takes to get a ladder? It takes four weeks to get a ladder. Why? Because they've got these incredible systems. It doesn't serve us. Because that team is not aware of the operational needs. Now, once you're aware of it, of course, you can bring operational people into your dialogue about how you do procurement. So... The art is, as we become aware we're impacting something, we pull people in. Typically what we do, we're making a lot of money selling cigarettes. People are saying, well, that's having an impact on people's health. We try not to pull them in. (laughs) We try to, we'll do what we can to keep them happy while we make our money. The idea is, as you realize you have an impact, you pull people in. Now, that's the same on a team or an individual, a team, an organization or an industry, whatever, we can't act on it if we don't know we're having an impact. As we become aware of the impact, we want to include it, incorporate it, find out about it. We need a story that works for society as a whole, not just for our procurement team or our cigarette manufacturer or whatever it might be. And it's that practice or that process that is the fundamental thing to start to introduce then we'll work out how, how big our organisations can be. I wouldn't say that they should be some size or another, but more that we just begin that practice. Because that awareness also means that you get a different level of participation. You get the, they're being pulled in, then you're participating. That participation then starts to build these impersonal relationships and ways of working together that at the moment we just don't have in our organisation. We've gone... To the very big picture, if we come right back and there's 10 of us working together, you know, and we're sort of doing okay, not getting on very well, would dialogue make a difference? Absolutely. Mm. How would we do that? We'd sit down together, talk a bit, try some check-ins, a little bit of skill building, and gradually develop a way in which people can think together. And it will affect the productivity the effectiveness of the organisation, definitely measurably uh, in many areas we can tell you about it, but it will also affect how people feel about being part of that group. The satisfaction they have of helping colleagues and being helped, the fulfilment they have of doing something worthwhile. I was involved in that. We We did some really good work there, whatever it might be. That kind of feel is quite deep and quite solid and quite realisable through rather simple processes. So I love what you've done there to bring us back to uh, an intact team, maybe an an exec Mm -hmm. team of 12 or 14 people. And I can see how that awareness process could work in a relatively sensible or um, appropriate time frame. When things start to scale and there are many people involved, does this not become very time-consuming? Uh, again, for organisations that may not be able to afford that time. So, so if you imagined a business with, say, 10,000 people, mm. 5,000 people, 
how many people do you need to involve for that organisation to have the level of self-awareness that you're talking about? Yeah. But people are talking together anyway. They're having mm. meetings anyway. They're trying to work together anyway. So it's really just embedding this way of working and what they're doing. We've worked with, a actually, it's a governmental organisation, but they have 11,000, 12,000 staff. They've integrated dialogue right through all of their staff. And it's involved, they have learning teams where they use dialogue, they use it in their meetings, they have a process they call a working dialogue, which has got a, a deliberate set of steps to it to include all the different stakeholders in making decisions together. So they're managing it and they're, you know, it really is just about integrating this into what you're doing anyway. Very well, simple, actually. And I'd add to that, I, I understand the question to be, is this scalable to a larger organisation and within timeframes that within, that are manageable and yeah. workable, time frame and cost of yeah. time and money. Well, the first thing is how much time are we spending dealing with the problems we're creating? And if you slow down and think about it, an awful lot of the meetings are with other people trying to put right stuff that isn't working. <laughs> so one is those can be handled in a different way. Second one, if we're going to sit down and hear everybody's view about everything, we're never going to succeed. It would take forever. So you need some skill. And there is a skill which leads to being able to draw out what's needed quite simply and quite efficiently and to act on it. So it is scalable. And Jane's describing an organization there of 12,000 people where it is scaled. They're, they're now top of their industry in the area, you know. So it's measurable as well. There what we did was just two of us, mm. we developed what we call dialogue practitioners. And those dialogue practitioners not only help the education, but they help facilitate some of the key sessions that are needed. But with that, you've got to have your executive group have the experience, start to get a feel for the value. But it's not just meetings it's actually in the processes, the policies, the resources, the way you define it. You can take this to scale significantly. Well, actually, what, you, <laughs> what we have to do is, which we began with, is change the minds, change the way people think and change the way they do business. If instead we added on a layer of dialogue, that would mean the dialogue itself would be in a part that would be fragmented from the rest. <laughs> so it would be doing, you know, it's causing the same problem. So we've really got to get it into the way people work and the way that they think. I come back and reframe your original question. I think you said, what's one thing you'd like people to take away? Mm. Having had this conversation, what I'd like people to take away is that dialogue is a particular way of talking and thinking together which can lead to a common understanding of how to move forward together and can generate new opportunities. So it's a kind of living story that we're building and generating that creates a future which we believe together is of value. And that's rather simple. You can do a bit of dialogue for a few weeks and get great benefit from it, and you can take this to scale quite broadly. Beautiful. So let's finish with some practical thoughts that somebody listening to this is, is like, okay, so what do I do today or uh, tomorrow? How can I introduce something of this um, to the team I'm on or the team I'm leading or the business that I'm running or creating? And maybe if we could start with this them and they uh, mm. uh, as, a, as a point of entry into that. If you're talking about them, invite them into the room. Don't make decisions on behalf of other people. 
don't make assumptions about what it's like for them. Actually get them into the room and engage with them with the intention of including what they're thinking in the way that you think and sharing with them your thinking. So ensuring that don't bring them in and, you know, let them do Lecture them. (laughs) Or or let them do, lecture you. (laughs) Actually think together. But that would be the place to start. So I would, in the organisation, not change the role accountabilities, who makes decisions, who's accountable for them and so on. I'd say when you, in your organisation, make a decision, rather than assuming the impact, as James said, bring in the people you believe are impacted by it and say, this is what I'm thinking of doing, what do you all think? And play out in conversation the impact of your decision in a number of ways until you get clear what that decision would be. You can't do that with every decision you make, but some of them, if you don't, you'll make the decision and when people react, they won't be happy and you'll spend a lot of time dealing with it. (laughs) So it's efficient to bring them into the room and think together about it so you or I make the right decision ourselves as best we understand it. And one last thing then, and that's to do with meetings, which is something that a lot of people listening to this will be spending a lot of time in. So imagine somebody listening to this who is running a meeting tomorrow with, say, a dozen people or 20 people. What one thing could they do that would turn something of that meeting into a dialogue in the way that you have defined it for us today? They could use a check-in. Do people do that? I don't know if they do. But what often some do, but it's often do. very rushed. It's a and... really simple thing that you can do, and it's not an icebreaker. It is thinking: what is the purpose of this meeting? Why have I brought these people into this room? What are we trying to do? What question could everybody answer at the beginning of the meeting that would help push the work of this meeting forward? So the check-in in the check-in, everybody speaks at the beginning of the meeting. But that process is part of the content of your meeting. It's not something separate. So it it might be you've got a busy agenda. What's the most important thing for you, from your view, for us to decide today in this meeting, for example? I'll add to that. If you begin the meeting with inquiry, not advocacy. (laughs) We're here to do this. What do you think? And hear from everyone. So you'll find out what you didn't know rather than telling everybody what you do know. In running and the everyone, meeting... everyone, everyone finds out what they didn't know. And everybody <laughs> hears it, but, yeah, but find out rather than telling. The key thing at the end, if it's a repeat meeting, regular meeting, key thing is to say, how did we do today? Hear from everybody, encourage them to be honest. How do you think we did today? That will improve the quality of that group regularly meeting quite rapidly. How do we do? Well, all the time Peter and Jane talked. How do we do? We went off the subject. How do we? We didn't. We did brilliantly today. Like if we did more of that, we'd really, mm. whatever it is, you'll start to learn how that team will take off. You know? The other thing, it, it, <laughs> using a check-in also just makes people prepare. It makes them think, what is this meeting about and why have I brought everybody here? Because often people don't. They rush from one meeting to another and they have their agenda. Right, where are my papers? What's, what's agenda item one? And then you're off. So it may, also makes people prepare and think yeah. about what they want to achieve. The other one, if it's a meeting which you attend regularly and you know is a waste of time, <laughs> perhaps you feel that, like I could be doing something better, have a check in. What value is this meeting to you? 
And you might find you don't have it anymore. Or you might find, well, if we did something different, it would be valuable, but not how it is. There's a number of ways, but they are based on inquiry, on, on people adding to common understanding. Peter, Jane, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fabulous um, hearing about your work of uh, <laughs> professional dialogue. Um, it's been great to meet you both. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to meet you. Sorry Robert. if I got a bit ranty at times <laughs> <laughs> when I was getting wound up about the world. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Thank you. The collaboratively dialoguing Peter Garrett and Jane Ball. Huge thanks to them both for their invaluable time today. If you want to find out more about their work and the regular events they run, check out their website at dialogue-associates.com, where you'll also find details of Peter's book, A New Kind of Dialogue. You've been listening to Highly Relational. Check out our show notes for more information about today's guests and the topics covered. And if you're enjoying what we're doing, give us a like, rate and subscribe wherever you're listening. I'd like to thank today's studio manager at VoxPod, Hector Lee. Our researcher is Ella Halsell and the series producer is Ollie Giu. I'm Robert Diggings. Thanks for listening and goodbye.